Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Welcome back to uh, part two of our discussion about the uh, newly released book called Music by John Barry. Uh, to discuss this book, we have our, our two guests coming back to uh, discuss with us some of the scores that are mentioned in the book, those two guests being Stephen Wilson and Tony Weeks. And we share some additional thoughts about other scores that are featured in the book and play some cues from them as well. So I hope you enjoy part two of our discussion. I know I keep saying, well, this is my favorite or one of my favorites, and I've got to say it again. Uh, Stephen, I'm talking about one of your choices. Again, sticking with the decade of the uh, of the 60s. My gosh. And this was, again, an, an example of I heard the music first and loved it, but didn't see the film for years. The Line in Winter. Uh, just what an amazing film in all sorts of aspects, not just the score, but the performances, the script, everything. It was just absolutely amazing. And you've chosen, if I'm not mistaken, the basically... It's the end credits, but it's called We're All Jungle Creatures. And what a send-off for this film. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to include that, uh, because it is written up very nicely in the book. Yeah, it is written up very nicely in the book. And, of course, there's a lot of commentary from uh, from Jane Merrow, uh, who a number of us are connected with on Facebook, uh, talking about her experiences. She's certainly a big fan, uh, as, as revealed uh, in that. You know, and the thing is, the, the line in winter may be, may be John Barry's greatest score. Yeah, um, and the only reason I hesitate is because there's so much competition and so much variety in and around it. But, you know, what, what you've got to remember is, is let's put ourselves back in 1968, just before the line in winter comes out. John Barry is not a classically trained composer. A lot of classically trained composers just see him as a pop right. guy. Uh, you know, and, and yet here he comes in, a, in an era where using chorus in a film score is not that common. And he writes what sounds like a classically masterful piece of music, um, you know, and, 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 and with, with some masterful choral work. You know, it's an incredible achievement for a guy who's got himself pegged as basically a pop composer, you know, a composer that at the time, at the time, a lot of people do look down on as just a pop composer. And yet he rewrites this, this classically masterful thing with, with beautiful fanfares, with great, mu with great mood, with great, you know, trumpets and strings and all this choral work. It is, you, you know, the, the word magnificent was made for the line in winter, <laughs> yeah. and I and, and, and interesting too that the the uh, the, uh, the choirs are they're, they're all singing in Latin, which I found fascinating, mm -hmm. and, and obviously it fits the time period. And I'm trying to think. I don't. Yeah, they do mention it in the book too. For those of you that aren't familiar, one of the people that Barry had studied with uh, was Dr. Francis Jackson, who was a, a yeah. master of music at York uh, Minster, and. Uh, I think he picked up a lot of uh, choral music from uh, from studying with him. Is that is that the way you understand it? Yeah, that is my understanding. Yeah, and and like I say, for, for a guy who had not had a classical training, 
you know, the line in winter must have been, uh, you know, quite a challenge. I'm not, I'm not saying that he found it difficult. I wouldn't know if he did or if he didn't. I'm just saying, though, that for, for a, a guy who wasn't classically trained, who really was making that leap from relatively lightweight films to, to this really serious period drama with this kind of classical mastery, that was a real step up for John Barry. That was a real step up from what he had yeah. been doing. And there's one of the things I'd love to say about this, just before you play the piece, is that even though this is set in a time... Um, you know, the, 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 one of the fascinating things that John Barry does with The Line of Winter, as, as well as having these, these magnificent fanfares, as well as having uh, the, these, great, these great pieces of chord music, is he actually uses the Moog synthesizer mm. in the score, but only in a subtle way. You know, you could easily play this score and not realise that, that, that the Moog synthesizer is there. But I'll tell you this, if you took it out, you would know that was magnificent to me, the fact that, that that it could be subtle to the extent you don't necessarily realise it's there, but you miss it when it's not yeah. there. Uh, because he's only using it really to, to augment what's already happening in the orchestra, to, to maybe give it a little bit more of a deep voice, maybe to give it more uh, boom and sustain and things like this. But wow, what 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 a what a inventive but also subtle use of the Moog synthesizer for a score that's about a film that's that, that, that's set so many hundreds yeah. of years ago. And, and, and I'm guessing, you might know better than I do, maybe it's not the first time it was used in a film, but it certainly is one of the first times that a Moog synthesizer was used in a film. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the Moog shows up a lot more than a lot of people think. Um, you know, I am I mean, if you listen to Deadfall, there's a sequence where there is definitely a synthesizer that's adding to the, that, that's deepening the voice of the orchestra. And that's the sequence where they're, uh, you know, where, where they're planning the robbery, mm-hmm. you know, so the, 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 there is evidence, lots of evidence of, of, of synthesizer being subtly used. And of course we haven't picked this movie and I don't think it's even covered in the book, but you know, when Intrada brought out the CD of the black hole and they isolated the, the, the synthesizer from the end title, that, made you realize just how much synthesizer was there. And I'm convinced that, that the synthesizer was equally present in Moonraker. And again, if you recorded it without it, I think you would definitely tell, uh, you would definitely miss yeah. it. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I even suspect that there may have been synthesizers augmenting the, the low notes of the orchestra in Raise the Titanic. Huh. I'm not sure about that, though. But there was definitely loads of synthesizer going on in the black hole. There was definitely synthesizer going on in, in the lighting winter. There was definitely synthesizer going on in Deadfall. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a listen to this. This, again, is from the film called The Line in Winter. The cue is called We're All Jungle Creatures. Let's have a listen.
while I think it's important to kind of highlight um, some of the music that was written, I don't, I don't want to uh, forget to mention a little bit more about, about the book itself, music by John Barry. Tony, maybe I'll start with you. What, um, what are, what are some things that you, that you like about this book that was, uh, you know, welcomed? I mean, cause there've been a couple of books that have been done before and some of these stories we already know, but I mean, it, 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 just tell me a little bit about uh, what you liked about the book and what you would uh, tell others who might be considering getting it. Well, just the way, I mean, particularly Jeff, I mean, all, all of his books have been quite brilliant. Um, it's just finally having um, this stuff in front of me that I can read about these scores that I've loved for so many years. And there are three guys here that obviously love this, those scores as well. And that it's telling me things that I didn't realize, you know, there, there are things even after all these years, I, I love, you know, like Stephen says, I'm a bit older than him, but I, you know, I still like to learn and, and I'm, I'm learning things from it. You know, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, there were a couple of things today I was reading and I suddenly went, well, I had no idea that that had happened. Uh, or or whatever. Then also things like uh, when they talk about some of the way the critics panned his music and you kind of, yes. God almighty, you know, how could they have said that about, you know, particularly Enigma, you know, the last one, you know, people were panning that um, like mad. And, and yeah, um, it, it's, it's just, it, it's very clear as well. There's no... I mean, I, I know, I think it did a few weeks ago, uh, one of the guys that's part of the group, I, th- I think was kind of knocking it a, a bit. And I, I guess, and I know Stephen will know him. Um, Richard, who, who used to, with Robert Wood, uh, own a record store. And I think he was sort of saying, well, it was a, it, it was kind of a, it was a missed opportunity because he didn't really talk about his life. Uh, I haven't got back to Richard yet, but I, I'm going to. I think the thing is, we didn't need it. Eddie Fiegel kind of did the stuff about his life. And the other books that Jeff did were about his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if Richard and Robert want to do that, then they should do it. I think it would be brilliant. What this is, it's just very clear. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing about his his marriages breaking up or anything. It's literally about his music and about these scores that are so important to me and well to all of us that are here today really um yeah okay steve steven how about you what are what are your thoughts on the uh, book and why you encourage why you would encourage people to to buy a copy well i think you know it's a beautiful looking book i I love a well-bound hardback book i'm actually very particular about how books are bound you know I, i i hate it when when you get that sort of paperback binding with the hardback glued on it you know it's a beautiful looking book it's a beautiful feeling book uh, I love the design of it, and, and let's face it. In terms of the content, we love to know the backstory. We, we, you know, we don't want to just listen to the music. We want to know, you know, how did he get this gig? What went on? Did, you know, did he like what he did on this gig? Did he dislike it? Did he yeah. get on well with people? You know, what are the stories behind all of this? Now, the and, and if I may very briefly speak to to the point that that Tony raised about Enigma, you know, there's yeah. a bit in the book that that talks about somebody who was at the premiere. That somebody was me. I was the one who told this story. You know, I was at the Enigma premiere, and the credits on that film, as you know, are on the on the end credits, not not on at the front of the film. And so, when the film was over, there were two points at which the audience applauded. One was when Michael Apted's name came up, and one was when John Barry's name oh. came up. You know, the audience very much appreciated the score in the context of the movie. Now, I, I know a lot of people felt that that. You know, it wasn't sufficiently new, out there, you know, different, but it fitted that movie so beautifully, and the audience definitely appreciated it. And you know, look, what is this book? This book is really a series of articles, uh, where there's one article per film score, where we get that backstory, we we, you know, we, we get the interesting information behind uh, the score. Now we have now got a few books about John Barry, and I still think that there's at least two more books out there because uh, as as uh, Tony revealed um, Eddie Fiegel's book talks about Barry's life but it only covers the 60s right. uh, 
you know, Jeff Lennon's uh, first two books about Barry, um, you know, the, the Midas Touch one and, you know, A Life in Music, they're very much career bi- biographies rather than personal biographies. Uh, and, and that's very much because, you know, it's very much in Jeff's style. You know, he's a researcher uh, and he and he does diligent research and he writes up uh, his research, which is very much career oriented. I, I still think there's a room for a personal biography of Barry uh, as opposed to a career biography of Barry. Uh, and I also think there's room for a Fred Carlin style book, which is a critical appreciation of Barry's musical uh, style. You know, because again, the, these books are very much uh, telling the story of how he got gigs, what happened when he was scoring movies. Uh, but we, we we don't yet have a book which is a critical appreciation of him as a composer, which analyzes his musical form, his musical style, you know, how he approached things. So I definitely think there's at least two more books besides a volume two of music yeah. by John Barry that could be written. Yeah, let's hope there is a volume two because there's as many great scores that are highlighted in this book. And they are, they made some great choices. There's still a lot of other scores. I wish I could get similar kind of information on. So perhaps maybe there will be a volume two. Yeah. Well, I know I, what you're I, saying. I, and, and you know what? Sometimes some of the most interesting stories come with some of the most minor films. I mean, you know, probably one of the worst films that Barry ever scored. And most Barry fans don't particularly like the music either is game of death. Huh? But I would love to know the backstory yeah. of that. I would love to know how that came about because that 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 seems like a such a a, a left field choice for Barry. You know, I know we've got some some information about how he came to do it, but you know, even though it, it's probably one of the worst films he scored, even though it's not a favorite score amongst uh, fans uh, musically, I, I actually do like it. I, I actually really wish we could get a complete score. I agree, of that, but it's not a favorite of fans. But you know. But, but I would love to know the backstory. I would love to know what was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Just on volume two, I mean, Jeff has definitely alluded to the fact that there is going to be a volume two of, of this. Because um, I think somebody complained that Raise the Titanic wasn't included <laughs> in it, which I, I know, uh, Stephen. Actually, you 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 sort of rallied and said, "Well, there's a there's a book all about that coming out this year as well." But um, Jeff did come back and say, "Well, that will be in, in volume two. So I think there has to be, uh, and I wouldn't mind betting there'll be a three. But I'm completely with you as well, Stephen. Yeah, I'd love that. I would love that a, a more of a critical look. At he as a composer um, would would be brilliant. I mean, to be quite honest, I'm you know the the stuff with Jane Birkin that I, you know I've I read the books. I'm not that interested in those sort of things, but certainly somebody just to say you know what they you know what they believe his style is and whatever. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. The uh, and for our listeners that uh, they both uh, Stephen and Tony have mentioned Jeff, who is one of the, uh, one of the authors, Jeff Leonard is his name. And I can, I always remember, wasn't there some kind of a quote that John Barry said that Jeff Leonard knows more about my career than I do. Something yeah. to that effect, right? Yeah. 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 If, if so, you actually Google it, it actually comes up. It, it actually, you, you actually get this quote um, that, that comes up. Yeah. He, he did. He did say that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I have, have to an say, good authority I mean, that I the three people, that, the three bit. gentlemen that worked on this book are just, yeah foremost I mean, authorities on John Barry. So yeah, I mean, take advantage of it. If you haven't, if you haven't picked a copy up yet, I would highly encourage you to do it. Even if you're not like a huge John Barry fan, but you're, but you're a big film score fan. I still think you'd get a lot out of it just based on what Tony and Steven were telling us about. Yeah. And I would like to mention if it's okay, uh, Frank, that, that there's a couple of other guys who have been around on the John Barry scene since the beginning. And, and uh, yeah. you know, Tony mentioned that's Richard. Robert Wood and Richard Jolly. They, they are also yeah. excellent authorities. I mean, I learned most of what I know yeah. about uh, Barry from them. That, you know, and, and they ran the original John Barry Appreciation Society. You know, the, 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 they're also really cool guys in terms of, uh, of, of what they know. And what they've done over the years to help people access. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I remember Robert Wood's uh, work on that too. I was I was a member of that too at one point. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely and, right. And they were actually but, instrumental in organising the um, uh, tribute concert to him, actually in York, because there were two um, tribute concerts, and the one in huh. York, uh, Robert was very much behind that. Oh, that's that's. And also, yeah. Frank, 
let's not ignore the the fantastic John yeah. Harlingame. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. he is a fantastic. You know, he, he is. He demonstrates what yeah. film music journalism should be. We live in an age where people have forgotten what journalism is. They think it's opinion mm-hmm. piecing. They, they they think it's hearsay. You know, John is a true, good, old-fashioned, thorough journalist and a great, great. Person. Absolutely, and I, uh, I, I haven't mentioned this to him because he and I have had some communication back and forth. But I'm, I'm going to start calling him the hardest working man in show business. You cannot get a minute of this guy's time. He is always working on all sorts of things, and uh, he is. He's he's prolific and and obviously very talented, like you say. Well, let's uh, let's get back to the music, Tony. You had uh, your choice for the uh, the decade of the '90s is one that a lot of people consider we were talking about line and winter, maybe being his masterpiece. Well, some people think this one is, you know, the film I'm talking about is dances with wolves. Um, interesting. And I, and I think they mentioned this in the book. I'm trying to, I can't remember the chapter right off the back of my, uh, on the back of my mind, but this film was really important for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it was after uh, Barry had recovered from a very serious illness. And this was his, uh, I think it was his first work after that. And, uh, and there's some interesting stories in the, in the book as well about his work with Kevin Costner and those sorts of things. Uh, you chose, uh, uh, the end titles from this film, which really kind of plays several of the themes that play throughout the film. So it's a good representation of the score itself. Tell us a little bit about why you, uh, chose that one out of the book to, to highlight today. Well, I guess, I, I mean, I completely agree with Stephen about Line in Winter. Uh, but, I mean, I remember hearing that for the first time and I, just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. But for me, it, I think, I mean, as they say in the book, this is his magnum opus. It, it, it is, I think it is his ultimate masterpiece. I think just the, the, just the length and the depth and the breadth of it all, it, it's just incredible. And I think the fact that this came after a a period where, because he'd had a ruptured esophagus. So he was very ill. He was close to death. And I think a lot of us, I mean, you know, I mean, I think there were a lot of us really worried. I I was in in touch with with, with Robert a lot during this time and Robert was kind of keeping me informed about it. And I think we were all quite worried that, you know, maybe maybe this is it. Uh, We won't get anything from him again. And then he, then he did. He came back and he, he wrote this. I mean, bearing in mind the, the last film he did before this, I think the last actual film was Hearts of Fire with, with Bob Dylan, which was a, a really strange piece. But the, the other one oh. was, was Masquerade, with, right. which I, I, I saw in a cinema in Nottingham and I was the only person in the audience, basically. I was literally <laughs> the only person in the cinema. Then got to to dances and, and all of a sudden he's back. And not just with a bang, he just came back. He, he all of a sudden he was back in, in in the public eye. You know, he he won an Oscar. People were talking about him again, and for many years. And I'm I'm sure Stephen and I'm sure you, Frank, have gone through that in in in, in the past when you talk about particularly film music, but then you talk about John Barry. People go, well, what's what's you know what is that? You know, I've had people say, well, what kind of music is that? And I say, well, it's film music, and they go, but what kind of music is it? And then you talk about John Barry and they go, who's he? And I always have to say Bond, probably born free. But Darcy's came and he suddenly became famous again, really. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I saw the movie, I saw the three-hour version, and then I was lucky enough to see the four-hour version. And I know the music is a little bit kind of um, edited, not brilliantly in the four-hour version, but I think the four-hour version is... It has to be seen because it fills in everything about, the, you know, why he went to that, you know, to the frontier and, and, and that posting, um, you know, why it was empty when he got there and whatever. And, yeah, I mean, I, I just I just remember it, it's a film. Line in Winter is amazing, but Dances with Wolves made me cry. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, two times, you know, when... Uh, Two Socks dies, his horse Cisco dies, and then the end, you know, when, uh, you know, I I, I literally every time I see that movie and I have not got a dry eye. Um, So I I just think it's magnificent. I think any film that makes me cry always works, uh, you know. And, and yeah, the end titles, it's got about every theme. It's basically like the whole score done in about 
six, seven minutes. I can't remember how yeah, long. Yeah, it's like a suite or something. Yeah, huh? yeah. And, and, and he used to play it at the, the very first um, concert in 98. He played the whole thing. And unfortunately, because I think he got, I, I really don't think he liked performing. He kind of truncated it. So that 98 yeah. performance was incredible. Yeah, but yeah, so that's, love it. And, and and what's interesting too, as as we've been talking about earlier, this is an example because I think he and Costner had discussions. He, you know, Costner, well, this is a Western movie, so I need Western music. And John Barry said, no, this isn't a Western. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about? It, yeah, absolutely. This is more about John it, John Dunbar's journey and those sorts of things, yeah. and that's how he approached it. Yeah, There's it, some it, Western music in it, but not a lot. Yeah, it's literally John Dunbar going on this journey he wants to see the frontier before it goes, and effectively, it's almost gone. And then he, you know, it, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it's right up to date. I mean, if you think about it now, we're talking about uh, you know things like climate change, you know, changing uh, the ways that we eat. You know, these people were, were doing that. You know, they, they wouldn't just kill the the buffalo just for the fur. They were doing it because they needed, and they would use every single part of it. And that, oh, yeah. you know, this is nineteen ninety, and he they would talking about things that are now prevalent today you know uh, i'm sure yeah. greta thunberg must love it somehow you know yeah. it's incredible it, it, yeah love it all right well let's have a listen this is again from the movie uh, dances with wolves and the cue is basically called the end titles so let's have a listen
I'm going to again use a podcaster's privilege and, and highlight another score of mine that I thought, or mine, of his that I thought was interesting. And I was really glad they included this in the book. And the reason why I was really glad is that the vast majority of the score wasn't used for the movie. The film I'm talking about is called uh, The Golden Child with uh, Eddie Murphy. And f- we're extremely fortunate, and I don't know how long ago it was, but we were fortunate that a few years ago, the tapes were found magically, and uh, and his entire score that he wrote, most of which wasn't used, uh, you know, appears on this CD. And, it, I, you know, I just love it. Now, apparently at test screenings, and they talk about this in the book too, they did some test screenings, and actually one of the things that people highlighted, which I found interesting, was that people said, well, the music didn't really fit the topic. Huh, okay, well, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but apparently it was a, a lot of people said that, and so they ended up bringing another composer in, and I guess they left some parts of Barry's score in there, and of course the song, too, uh, they left in there as well. But I, I love the score when I listen to it, and what I was going to do is basically the, the first cut on the CD that was released is what I was going to play. Uh, it's basically called The Child is Taken, but it's a, several different cuts that are a part make up that cue. And what I like about it is that it, it's very spiritual in points. There's like a choir that's used. There's ethnic sounds in it, for lack of a better way of saying it. Maybe you guys can, can uh, say it better than I can. It seems to have some romance. It's also a little cue in parts because there is some action that takes place during this sequence. And yet it's, uh, it's also melodic. I mean, it just to me has almost a little bit of everything that John Barry has excelled at and through his career. I think it's a good example of all sorts of things that he can do. Um, any, any thoughts on that fellas before we play it? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, um, sorry, Stephen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was going to say for me, I completely agree, but I'm just very glad actually it didn't uh, end up in the movie because the movie didn't deserve it. Um, <laughs> for me, it just, I understand. Also, you know, I, I they're, they're accusing it that should have been in, in a Bond movie. I mean, without a doubt. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, just the end. Um, yeah, that music is is too good. It just is. But yeah, it's um, a wonderful score. And I'm so glad we got it. He, he yeah. had a way of elevating movies, didn't he? He's, you know, almost outclassing the it, movie itself with a score. I mean, I think a Star Crash would be an example of that too. So yeah. yeah. But, but you also oh, would, you have a thought? I would love to see the long cut with Barry's score on it. I don't think it'll ever happen. I would love to see it at least once, even though it's a terrible film. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think the thing about The Golden Child, because I've seen scenes from The Golden Child with Barry's music reapplied, and it works. I think yeah. where Barry probably misread the movie is is that, you know, I, I, I think... I mean, obviously, I wasn't there. I can't say I know this for sure. But it's like he scored the movie forgetting that it was an Eddie Murphy vehicle. Because if you actually put to one side that Eddie Murphy was a star and it was an Eddie Murphy vehicle and just take the movie at face value as if somebody else was in the lead, that score would have been bang on the money. But the problem is, is it was an Eddie Murphy vehicle and it was for Eddie Murphy fans who came to that screening and wanted to hear music for an Eddie Murphy movie. And I think that that's where, where Barry kind of misread it, is that he took the movie at face value rather than recognizing this is an Eddie Murphy vehicle uh, for Eddie Murphy audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great points. Let's have a listen. Again, this is a, from the unused portion of the score that uh, was written for the film called The Golden Child. And I'm going to play you what's uh, the first cut on the, on the CD, if you happen to have it. It's been, and it's a combination of several different cues, and it's called The Child is Taken.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week. Well, we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. Stephen, one of the ones that uh, that you wanted to play again, going back to the '60s, and this was a monumental achievement in in several different ways, and it is talked about quite a bit in the book. It's a significant chapter. The film I'm talking about is Midnight Cowboy, and what John Barry's contribution was uh, to this film, not only writing music, orchestral music for it, but some other aspects of it as well. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Why did you want to highlight this chapter in the book? Uh, for the film Midnight Cowboy. Well, the thing is about Midnight Cowboy, I mean, we've already talked about, um, you know, the magnificence of The Lion Winter. We've talked about Dances with Wolves being Barry's magnum opus. A lot of times when we, when we look at movie music, we have a bias towards big orchestral scores. Um, but the thing about Midnight Cowboy is it's not this big orchestral score. It's not this sweeping Miklos Rocha-esque thing. You know, it's something that's very much rooted in... In, in the field of pop music, both in terms of the songs, but also in terms of the score. And the thing is, even though it isn't this big sweeping orchestral thing, it may be, it may be John Barry's most perfect creation. You know, Light mm-hmm. was magnificent, Dance World was the magnum opus, but Midnight Cowboy may be the most perfect creation. And it is... Um, you know, uh, it, it isn't this big orchestral thing. I mean, I think that, that the work with the harmonica in this score is absolutely inspired. I think it wonderfully captures the, this paradoxical sense that on the one hand, we're in this exciting city of opportunity, but we're also witnessing the lives of desperate people. Um, you know, th- th- there's a, a wonderful sort of platonic love story going on uh, mm-hmm. in Midnight Cowboy, And of course, the tragic ending, which again I think Barry reads with you know, par excellence. You know, I mean, that ending of Midnight Cowboy, just just the guitar and the the harmonica, and it blows ninety percent of the big orchestra scores ever written away, because uh-huh. it is that powerful, is that on point emotionally. And again, that's what Barry did. Barry wasn't about the technique of film; he was about very much reaching into the hearts and souls of the people whose journeys we are following. And that's why it speaks. So, yeah, I think that Midnight Cowboy may be his most perfect creation. Yeah, yeah it's a great description. And yet and yet the cue you chose, if memory serves, uh, I don't think involves a, a harmonica at all. But I, And I love it because it's, it's, it's one of the things I think he excels at. And I don't know how else to describe it other than kind of like this soft West Coast jazz kind of a thing. Yeah, it's exactly. called Fun City. And the reason I didn't pick the harmonica theme this time is because, of course, I picked it on the last time I appeared on your show. So, folks, ah. go and check that one out because that was a okay. best book too. Uh, but, yeah, I, I picked Fun City, which not only has the distinction that it's not the harmonica piece, 
but it's not even in the movie. You know, it's a bit of a mystery uh, what oh, wow. okay. it is. But nevertheless, it's, it's got the, again, it completely taps into this sense that we're in this exciting big city. But there's a there's a sort of bluesy kind of um, you know experience of this big exciting city, uh, and I just think it's a wonderful track. Yeah, well, let's have a listen. This again from the uh, film called Midnight Cowboy, and the cue is called Fun City. Well, here we are as we get to, to the 2000s, I guess, if you will. And this was basically as Barry's uh, career was winding down. But he did have a uh, a great score with a film in the year. I think it was the year 2000. Or what, what was it? Or 2001? I can't remember. Yeah, 2001. Uh, uh, and the film's called Enigma, which has already been referenced a little bit. But this is one that Tony has uh, chosen, and uh, he wants to play the end titles. And tell us a little bit about why you wanted to highlight that film that's uh, mentioned in the book. Well, before I do, I, I've just got to go back to what Stephen was talking about, Midnight Cowboy, because... Okay, I, sure, please. 
as you know, I, I chose it on my last um, thing on the show that I did with you. Um, and I agree. I completely agree. I think it probably is his most perfect score. And I think, I mean, for me, the film is, is I hate having to have favourite of anything, but I think <laughs> it's probably my favourite ever movie, full stop. I just, I love it. But yeah, going back to Enigma, Enigma had to, because it is, it, it's, I mean, we didn't know it at the time. Um, once again, personally, uh, it came out the same year that I married Julie, so that that kind of has a has a, an extra spin to it. I, I, I've often said, for me, it was the perfect ending if there could have ever been one. Although I would love him to have done more stuff, you know, like The Incredibles or whatever. But it, it had everything that he'd kind of done. It had war, it had spies, and it had two absolutely gorgeous women. And that, for me, kind of sums up John Barry in lots of ways. I think he, <laughs> you know, it, they're the kind of things that, you know, war, I mean, as was said in the book, you know, in, on the beyondness of things, in the beyondness of things, you know, childhood memories is very much about his him growing up in York and that literally smelling death, you know, people burning after the bombing and everything. So he'd got that personal knowledge of that time and then there was a spy element to it. And actually, Doug Grace Scott and, um, oh God, uh, uh, Jeremy Norden, I actually truly believe would have both made great James Bond. I mean, Jeremy Norden, Julia Dawes, and she's always said he'd make great Bond. Yeah, it's just got everything. Um, and uh, and as I said, none of us knew at the time that this would be the, the very last score he would do. Um, of course we didn't, um, but you know here we are, and it is. And I know it gets knocked whenever it's reviewed um, in uh, like TV magazines, like Radio Times. They tend to say it's like a bit like a Sunday afternoon kind of movie. I, I disagree. I, I I think it's a really understated movie. I, I I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think it's got very. I think it's got different strands to it. Um, you know, it's got the romance, it's got the intrigue, you know, um, is she or is she not a, a German spy? There's all of that. And then you go into to the convoy music uh, and that building up of, and you know what's going to happen. You know, he, he's, we already know that this is going to be a disaster and people are going to die, but he just does it in such a, once again, in, in a beautiful way. He, he always seems to manage to do these, uh, scores where there's there's real sort of horror, but he does it in a beautiful way. You know, he did the old dissonance score, like like uh, you know the, um, the white buffalo stuff like that. But you know, right. there it is. It's a horrible thing, but actually the convoy is, is quite beautiful. Um, but I chose I, I chose the end titles purely because it's literally the very last piece of music that we ever you know he ever wrote for a film you know we we, we and we'll never you know we, we'll never see his name again uh and i i that you know still to this day you know we're what 11 years on since he died and i i still haven't gotten over it and i don't ever will you know yeah no um, i understand i understand well let's have a listen to this and, and it is um it's a nice cap off to a to, to a career. This is again, and, and and by the way, was this the first film that Mick Jagger was the producer on? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. just an interesting little side note. It's in the book. They have a picture of him. I guess he also played an extra in the film as well. So yeah. He anyway, did. let's. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No. He. Yeah. He did. Yeah. 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 And there's also a great picture of a, a Barry conducting the orchestra for the score too. Which, by the way, we should highlight. There's some fabulous pictures all throughout this book. Oh, it's ones incredible. I've never seen, and so uh, yeah. it's 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 worth buying just for that alone. Anyway, let's go ahead and have a listen to this. This is from the film called Enigma, and it's the end titles.
Well, gentlemen, my gosh, the time has flown by, and we, uh, we've had, I think, an absolutely fascinating discussion. I can't thank both of you enough for, because uh, I know you did some research and some work on this. Obviously, we had to read the book first, which wasn't a chore by any stretch, but it did take some time because this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a big book, a very serious book. So my thanks to both of you for uh, going to all the trouble to, to kind of spend this time with us today and share some of your thoughts on not only the music, but also on the book as well. Thank you. Once again, thank you. Oh, my yeah, pleasure. Thanks, yeah, I hope you, I hope you enjoyed it. Again, the, uh, the book is called uh, Music by John Barry. Now, it's a little bit interesting about how to get the book, and I perhaps I'll put this on my uh, Facebook page because I'm trying to remember what it was, but there's a, a special website. If you live in the United States, there's a special website that you can order it on because what the authors figured out was that this book is, is so monumental and it's really heavy that the shipping costs from the U.K. would actually probably end up being more than the cost of the book. So they've been able to make it a little bit more reasonable by having it printed in the U.S. at this special website. And I'll, uh, I'll mention that uh, on, my, uh, on my Facebook page for What's the Score. Now, and the, rest of the rest of the world, I think, gets it out of the U.K. I mean, help me out, fellas. Do you recall uh, where, you, uh, where you find it? Because it's not in the usual spots like Amazon or what. Well, I think it will be asked from tomorrow because I see Pete Walker. I think today is doing... Um, a, like a signing up in Birmingham, and oh, you're right. like yes. tomorrow, I think it goes on on a general release as as, as such. Um, that's the thing you say for books. So I think tomorrow, but I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it was it was through um, the johnbarry.org. The um, once again, I've got to got to give that the, the man with the Midas touch the, the the website, which is is brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I think, and, I think... and also Rudd. We we haven't mentioned Rudd. Who who actually did um, the cover? Um, yeah, he was part of this as well. I don't think he's been mentioned a lot, really. Um, yeah. Another instrumental uh, uh, person in uh, covering the career of John Barry, and, and I love the back cover, by the way, which shows all the yeah the album uh, covers, which is that's just fabulous. It's priceless in, in and of itself. Well, anyway, gentlemen, again, my sincere thanks to both of you for. Uh, taking the time to spend with us today and, and to share your thoughts on the book and on the scores. Uh, my thanks to uh, also our uh, patrons who uh, have helped support the program through uh, patreon.com. In fact, we'll be having a bonus uh, episode for our patrons that uh, both Stephen and uh, Tony have agreed to help me out on. So uh, you can look forward to that. That should be coming shortly after this is released. Uh, and obviously a special thanks to the rest of you. We really appreciate you listening to the program and supporting it in that way. So uh, I guess there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.